Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. All right, now bring you gotta bring the energy. Bring that. You gotta bring the energy. <laughs> yes. Right after Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you just gotta gotta bring it when we kick it off here, you know? Okay. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I cover housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, November 30th, 2021, we're talking about some new directions and ongoing frustrations about a phenomenon we've seen visibly grow over the last several years. And that's the issue of homelessness, particularly encampments on the side of freeways, underpasses, overpasses, parks, and sidewalks. We're going to talk about why we're seeing more people camped on the streets and what people think about this and what can be done. Right. And beyond that, we're going to delve into the results of a new poll co-sponsored by the LA Times that has some dire findings on perceptions about homelessness in LA County. And then we're even going to talk about a few big ideas that are animating the debates around homelessness in Los Angeles and Sacramento. To get into all of this, as always, we have the perfect guest. Who is it, Liam? That's right. So making a nearly unprecedented fourth Give Me Shelter appearance is Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. Mayor Steinberg is proposing what he is calling a new right to housing in his city as his homelessness solution. We'll be talking to the mayor about what that all means. But before we dive into everything, let's get into the most famous segment of all of California housing podcastry. It is... The Avocado of the Fortnight. This is our look at the most extravagant, zany, outlandish story in all of California housing podcastry. But because this is an international show with listeners all over, most of my family, but they're out there, (laughs) we decided not to limit ourselves to California, but reach into the Southern Hemisphere because we love the phrase, my original stomping grounds, uh, Argentina. More specifically, Nordelta, one of the wealthiest gated communities in Buenos Aires, where soccer stars and industry titans have called their home. So this sounds pretty interesting. But you know, Manuela, it sort of needs to be a very special story to take us away from California. Of course. So please tell us what's happening in Buenos Aires. So alongside the rich and famous, up to 140-pound rodents have also staked out the coveted land as their own and proliferated. Capybaras, or carpinchos, as they're known in Argentina, are all over and multiplying in this gated community. Wow, so 140-pound rodents? Yes. They've knocked deliveryman off of his motorcycle after a collision in a dark intersection. They have destroyed manicured lawns and flower beds and left, quote, a bloody pair of deep gashes that looked like the handiwork of rodent incisors on Lucho, a resident's dog, according to a recent Wall Street Journal article on the matter. Oh no, not Lucho. <laughs> okay, but sadly, or maybe not sadly, but definitely sadly for Lucho, it sounds like there are many capybaras or carpinchos in people's backyards in Argentina. Yes. Now, Liam, I was actually a little surprised when you sent me this article because carpinchos have been a pretty regular part of the landscape for me since I was little. My grandma also lives in a gated community, although in a different part of the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And it was 
a regular pastime for me and my brothers and my cousins to go hunt for, not actually hunt, but look for carpinchos. And we would use their poop <laughs> to see where they were, which, as the article notes, is pretty large for a rodent. I see. Podcast listeners can't see my eyes getting <laughs> wide as we're just talking about this. So what's happened now is that without any natural predators and much, much, much more development on Argentina's largely unprotected wetlands, the population is out of control. And neighbors want to rein them in, which has led to two warring WhatsApp factions, our iMessage, in pretty much the rest of the world, at least Latin America. And so there's the pro and anti carpinchos. So <laughs> Liam, as a fictional homeowner in Nordelta, which camp do you think you would find yourself in? I mean, I think in theory, I'd like to think that I'd align myself with the pro carpincho camp mm. and celebrate rodent proliferation. Really? But, you know, after reading that Wall Street Journal article, I wondered whether I'd end up more like Gustavo Iglesias, who was described in the article as a 62-year-old real estate broker and longtime resident. Gustavo said, quote, I'm not anti-capybara. I want to scratch their cute little bellies as much as anyone else. Uh-oh, where is this going? So Gustavo continues, the problem is that their population is out of control and people are too scared to do anything. No one wants to look like they're opposed to nature. I can definitely see you saying that. Yeah, it's a closet, not at no capybaras in my, uh, yes. in my backyard situation. Right? Um, another resounding avocado. I hope it was worth it to leave California for a minute there. Um, so now let's head to the meat of our episode. Liam, you were telling me that you sat in on a focus group about homelessness recently. Tell us, what was that like? Yeah, that's right. So this is actually my first time watching one of these sort of focus group experiences. It was for a poll about attitudes on homelessness among L.A. County voters done by the Los Angeles Business Council Institute, which is a group of business leaders in L.A. We get the L.A. Times who are part of the poll as well. How these focus groups work is pollsters get a diverse group of respondents in a room. In this case, it was a virtual room. And the pollsters ask a bunch of questions about homelessness for about an hour and a half. And the mood in there was pretty dark. Yeah, how so? Well, there was just this sort of overriding sense of frustration, patience, and in some cases, even sort of hopelessness as it related to homelessness in L.A. People spoke of not knowing what to do about encampments that had grown all over the region, fear of rising disorder and crime, people upset at urine and feces in the streets. One woman said she had moved earlier this year after a camper caught fire where her kids used to play. Another two people that said that they had been personally attacked in altercations with homelessness people. Sort of what was interesting as well, I guess, is that you'd hear which perspectives and points of view were taking root in people's understanding of the homelessness problem. Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Again, there was a sort of overwhelming feeling that homelessness was due to a lack of personal responsibility among the group. And that even included one person in the focus group who was formerly homeless himself. And there was also some pretty strong agreement that tropes about homelessness in LA and California more broadly, that homeless people move here for the weather and that homelessness is mostly mental health and drug addiction problem were correct. This was sort of pervasive through the group. While in fact, studies show that both of these beliefs are wrong. You know, most homeless people are from the areas where they've become homelessness and the lion's share of those considered homeless don't have housing for primarily economic reasons. And if people want to get more into that, we also have an episode with LA Times reporter Ben Oreskes going into all of this. But it sounds really bleak. Yeah, the group was pretty bleak. 
Now, to be fair, the group I watched was actually more pessimistic about homelessness than the broader findings in the poll. It's not like numbers in the poll are actually really encouraging either. What did you all find in the poll? Just some of the top line figures. Four in 10 LA County voters said that our homeless people in their neighborhood made them feel significantly unsafe. Almost four in 10 voters said they either have experienced homelessness or housing insecurity in the past year or know someone who has. The racial disparity in those numbers was pretty striking, too. Right. Although in line with the stats that we know about how homelessness disproportionately affects people of color, almost half of black voters in this poll either experienced housing insecurity themselves or homelessness or know somebody who has. And this poll was actually a follow-up to a similar one that was done two years ago, which is like nice so you can sort of track attitudes over time. And so what the pollsters asked, if homelessness had gotten better in people's memories over the past couple of years, instead the region's voters said overwhelmingly that homelessness has gotten worse. 79% said so compared to 7% who believed the situation had improved and about 13% who said it had stayed the same. Overall, 94%, so like nearly unanimous voters viewed homelessness as a serious or very serious problem. And that was actually a constant finding from two years ago. But one big change is that over the past couple of years, the city and the county and state and federal governments have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to deal with homelessness in the LA region. And another depressing finding was that there wasn't any group, whether it was government or an advocacy organization or labor unions, who got more than 50% of a vote of confidence being any part of the solution. In fact, local, state, and federal governments and even news media were seen as culprits, although developers and real estate groups took the lead there. Is there anything else that has changed over the last couple of years since that first time the poll was taken? Yeah, so there was one finding among the changes that I think really stood out to me and to my colleagues at the paper as well, asked whether officials should focus on, quote, short-term shelter sites or, quote, long-term housing for homeless people with services. Voters by 57% to 30% opted for the short-term solutions option. And in a similarly worded question two years ago, our opinions were nearly evenly divided. I think that, that sort of speaks again to sort of this overwhelming kind of frustration that was expressed in the folks that we talked to for this focus group. And also that final Finding leads pretty well into a story that you wrote recently about homeless encampments, especially those near freeways. Why did you find that these encampments are growing? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot more people sleeping on sidewalks and tent encampments and makeshift sort of broken down RVs and bus camps pretty much everywhere in California. And one reason for that is that federal health guidelines from Centers for Disease Control during the pandemic urged law enforcement to stop clearing encampments, as well as to cut shelter capacity by as much as 50% in some cases to protect against COVID-19. And while we saw the creation of many additional shelter beds and in hotels and motels in Los Angeles, those more or less equaled out with the reduction of existing shelter capacity, not to mention the yet uncounted impact of the pandemic on more people becoming homeless. Right, right. So kind of give us a sense of where things were before the pandemic. There were about 161,000 people experiencing homelessness on any given night in January 2020, and that's two months before the pandemic hit. But even that count significantly underestimates the population as it's taken during one of the coldest nights of the year, and it doesn't include people who are couch surfing or far enough away from the public view. So 
It's a pretty unscientific survey taken by volunteers. That, unfortunately, is still the most recent estimate that we have of the homeless population because the sort of count that takes place nationally in January was canceled last January because of pandemic concerns that sort of unclear whether one is going to take place in L.A. or elsewhere next year or I guess in the coming months. But we still don't have a good estimate of the homeless population since the pandemic hit. Tell us, why aren't there are more people in shelters. So even before the pandemic hit and displaced an unknown number of people from their homes, we found that there was only about one bed for every three people living on the street, mostly in shelters. So one shelter bed. Yes, or sort of emergency transitional housing situation. But to be clear, not everyone thinks that that ratio that is currently about one to three should be one to one. While most shelters have long waiting lists, others have beds that go unfilled. And there's lots of problems with shelters that have been well documented, like substandard living conditions and some with rats, roaches, bed bugs, mold. And there's also theft and assault and harassment that's been reported by others also in those shelters. So did you talk to anybody for your piece who didn't want to stay in a shelter? So William Brown, who I spoke to for the story, he had been living on an off-ramp off the I-5 in the city of San Clemente before being cleared by Caltrans in August. He was staying in a camp with about 20 other people. And he turned down an offer to stay at a shelter because he had had his belongings stolen multiple times at shelters. And he had this degenerative eye condition that made him legally blind that he said made him pretty easy prey at shelters. And a bed in a shelter isn't exactly housing. Shelters are designed to host a person for a short period of time while they're relocated to a more permanent place. But the problem is that there isn't enough of those either. William, for example, he'd been trying to get on a wait list for a voucher that would allow him to pay 30% of his disability income on rent as long as he can find a landlord who will rent to him. But because of turnover among county workers, helping him alongside many other complications, he still hasn't managed to get on the wait list for one of those. And those wait lists can also take years. Wow. So he's on sort of a list to get on a list, essentially. And that's a very far away from permanent housing, it sounds like. What has the state been doing about the encampment issue? So in recent public appearances, Governor Gavin Newsom has been talking a lot about the need to clean up the state and address homelessness although it's not exactly clear how the different state agencies are coordinating these efforts or how they'll be fruitful in that effort in the absence of enough housing or even shelter for people. One stat that Newsom has repeated multiple times is how they've identified 100 encampments across the state and set strategies and timelines to clear them. But when I asked his office and Caltrans for more information, like where are those camps located, I was told they couldn't disclose that due to privacy concerns. So accountability has been difficult in that area. In all, Caltrans spent $15 million last year on homeless camp cleanups, and they conducted 19 encampment relocations in 2020. Whereas this year, they plan to spend more than double that with $36 million. They told me they've already completed 347 encampment relocations since January of 2021 through mid-October. So 
That's more than one relocation a day. Do we have any sense of like where the people living at these encampments are going afterwards? So when I asked what happens when there's no shelter beds or anywhere else for these people to go, Caltrans said that on high priority encampments, like where there's a threat to either the safety of the person or to essential infrastructure, they go on with the clearings anyways, and people just kind of have to find another place to go. It sounds like you're saying people just have to shuffle sort of somewhere else. Essentially, yeah. And that's one of the key reasons these shufflings that people have wound up on the highways to begin with, according to one report by the ACLU, but also from anecdotes with various homeless people I've spoken with, is that they were displaced from more public places like a sidewalk or a park where they might have been a little bit safer. William, for example, he told me, quote, we were on the off-ramp because we were out of the way. People don't want to see homeless people. A lot of us were there because that was the last place to go. So there's a state program separate from Caltrans to deal with encampments, which kind of does the opposite. Opposite of clearing them. Right. So the aim is not to displace people. It's $50 million in grants for local governments to provide services tailored to the needs of people in particular encampments. But when I asked how these different agencies were coordinating these efforts, since they're pretty similar, I was just sent to the other agencies, for example, and Caltrans sent me to the interagency on homelessness and officials at these declined multiple requests for phone interviews about how exactly they're coordinating all this. Just to put a finer point on it, the Interagency for Homelessness is like the Homelessness Coordinating Council. It's like in their name, and yet what we're having some trouble figuring out how everybody's coordinating. Exactly. So, of course, I mean, we can make fun of that, which I think is fair and well and good. But in doing so, we're sort of pointing out here that it's the homelessness residents who might get lost in this sort of bureaucratic shuffle or bureaucratic lack of coordination here but we are now seeing plans across the state that aim to be sort of a bigger overriding response to homelessness pitched as almost an entire solution or at least sort of this major strategy. And something I think that we definitely see too in this lack of coordination is these warring priorities sort of in response to that survey that you all conducted. They want to move people out of the way, out of sort of harm's way, but also want to help people move into some sort of shelter housing. But the availability of those options just hasn't caught up to the demand yet. And so everyone's kind of trying to figure out what to do in the meantime. Well, and let again, the problems you identified in terms of the shelter system itself. Exactly. So I think that what's happening in Sacramento is pretty telling of that. So why don't we start with what Mayor Steinberg is planning over here? Yeah, so he's proposing again what he's calling a right to housing. He's first calling for a plan for 5,000 new beds, about 500,000 new beds for homeless residents in the city, some shelter, some permanent housing, and that would add to the city's existing capacity for a total of about 9,000 beds citywide. And sort of interestingly, he's proposing this sort of legal mechanism that would allow homeless people to petition a judge to force the city to give them a bed. That's the quote, right to housing part. But Steinberg's plan also comes with an obligation to housing. That is that the city will be able to force someone to leave an encampment or stop them from sleeping on the sidewalk once this plan fully goes into effect. And together, this sounds a bit like some of the other homelessness plans that have been floating around recently. Yeah. And in fact, let's kind of take a step back here. 
The mayor first proposed an idea like this in 2019 when he co-led a homelessness task force appointed by Governor Newsom. He had first called it a, quote, right to shelter, echoing a policy in New York City. There, you have a lot less street homelessness in California, but the city's policy of essentially guaranteeing a spot in a homeless shelter is sort of, a, you know, hardly a paragon of homelessness policy. There's still plenty of homelessness in New York, and many shelters there are notorious for their squalor. So Steinberg pivoted a bit to this right to housing, which has generally been defined as a right to home rather than simply a shelter bed. But this plan really doesn't offer that. So Steinberg argues that the plan would create a strong push to hold the city accountable to build more housing. Advocates, however, are concerned that this is just an excuse to clear homeless camps. He argues his goal isn't to make life harder for people, but to get them indoors because of how horrible it is for people to be sleeping out in the elements. And he says that those responsible for enforcing anti-camping laws wouldn't be Sacramento police, but outreach workers. But some known as more tough on homeless crowds have also put out similar plans. Yeah, that's right. And in Los Angeles, a councilman, Joe Buscaino, who is running for mayor, pushing a local ballot measure that would bar people from sleeping in public places if they turned down an offer of a shelter bed or housing. And Buscaino is considered, again, one of the more, I suppose, tough on homeless elected officials in the L.A. region. Our L.A. Times columnist, Erica Smith, when assessing sort of both plans, said she could barely find a difference between Buscaino's and Steinberg's. And then this plan is also reminiscent of one put forward by former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, a Republican, when he was running in the gubernatorial recall. So we have a lot to talk about here, and let's break down all these points with Mayor Daryl Steinberg. So we are here with Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg making a nearly unprecedented fourth appearance on Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Daryl, thank you so much for being here once again. If it were Jeopardy, I'd really be happy. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Liam and Manuela. Good to be with you. So we want to talk about this idea you're pitching that you're calling a right to housing in your city. And this is something that you've been thinking about and sort of going over this idea for many years. You first put forward a right to shelter idea while working on the governor's homelessness task force. Can you tell us how your thinking has evolved on this issue? My thinking has evolved over the course of the last two years since I first introduced the idea of a right to shelter in an LA Times editorial in July of 2019. I now am calling for right to housing and it's different, but the fundamental underpinning is the same. And I should start by saying that I don't presume to have the whole answer here, but here is what I know that is consistent with both the original proposal and my current proposal here in the city of Sacramento. And that is the following. The law must change. The law must compel all those who are responsible for providing housing to people, especially poor, the indigent, those living with mental illness or dealing with substance abuse, the law must require that we, as cities, as counties, as the state, produce more housing. Because currently, as I've argued now for two years, we have a failed underlying policy. And that failed policy is that everything that society, through its governments, does around housing is voluntary and optional. 
Housing is an economic commodity. If you can afford it, you have it. If you're lucky enough to win the supportive housing lottery by being at the top of the list, you get housed. Everybody else fends for themselves. And if housing is an essential element of living a safe, healthy, and dignified life, then we ought to make it a right, or at least a requirement, that the government and the private sector to be driven to much higher levels of production. The law matters here, and the law doesn't support our objective. So Sacramento doesn't have the housing or shelter capacity now, and a lot of what you're calling for is additional shelter capacity. So in the absence of housing in the immediate term, what distinguishes this right to housing from a right to shelter? So I've written this, the first draft of this proposed ordinance, which I hope is a model for other cities in the state, maybe even the state itself, in a way that tries to say very clearly that permanent housing must be the imperative, but that it is going to take a long time before we have enough supply of permanent housing to be able to uphold that right. In the meantime, we have people that are living in the most horrible conditions. People living in the cold, in the heat, in the squalor, living in ways that are unhealthy and unsafe. I think about women and children living on the streets and men as well, of course, who are subject to the worst kinds of deprivations. And so my ordinance says that shelter can qualify as housing so long as for every individual, the city articulates and actually works on a path to permanent housing for that person. Because some people are not ready for permanent housing. Many people are. But I argue, and maybe this is a point of difference with some advocates and and some others in the field, I simply believe that the state of living outdoors is unacceptable. People live decades shorter lives. Women are subject to assault and sexual assault. People are deprived of so much. I would rather have people indoors in a tiny home, in a shelter, even in a supervised tent setting, as long as there were services that were brought to it, than what we currently have today. And so that's the answer. Housing is the right. But shelter is a stepping stone for those who need it. And by the way, shelter is not just congregate shelter. It can be tiny homes. It can be converted motels. It can be safe ground on the way to permanent housing. Governor Newsom frequently says this line, shelter solves sleep, housing solves homelessness. Another sort of point here, too, is that you're very explicitly relying on money from the federal and state governments to solve this issue. I mean, with so much of your plan in the short term, at least kind of centered on shelter capacity and a reliant on not just the city of Sacramento to come up with the money to provide this long-term housing that you say you need, how much ultimately of a dent in homelessness do you think this will make in both the short and medium term at the least? First of a couple of things. Number one, people have a much better chance to get permanent housing if they're indoors rather than outdoors. People have a much better chance to get help for their serious chronic mental health or substance abuse issues if they're living indoors as opposed to outdoors. 
And that's one that the critics of my ideas sort of gloss over. We can't get mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment to people living on the river. Let me speak about the governor for a moment. I think it is fair to say that he has done more than any governor in history to put real resources behind the aspiration to move the needle on homelessness. And he's also been very innovative. Look at Project Room Key and Home Key. That was a brilliant stroke that has helped thousands of people get indoors, many permanently. I have no issue with the governor. I think if we had had that kind of leadership in the decades before, we'd be a lot farther along. But here's what's missing. And it isn't about the governor per se, it's about all of us. What's missing is the systems reforms, the systems changes that combined with the money are gonna lead to faster production of housing and shelter, are going to lead to more collaboration between cities and counties to consolidate their resources to move faster and more effectively. Again, there's nothing that requires any city or county or the state for that matter to get the money out fast, to combine resources from different funding streams and different programs to meet the imperative of bringing people inside on a path to permanent housing. And I, I sometimes feel, and I always check myself because maybe I'm not communicating it as well as I need to or as I should. But my fundamental point is, even if you don't agree with the way I have put together the right to housing, that the law matters. The law says that every student is entitled to free public education. And that compels then the state, cities, counties, the school districts, to build enough school space to accommodate every student. I've talked a lot about climate change. We don't say, please replace fossil fuel with renewable energy. We have set a mandatory percentage. That has changed behavior. It has changed the public sector's behavior. It has changed the private sector's behavior. Because housing is voluntary, it's an economic commodity, we don't have to produce it. There's no production standard. Our systems in the, both the public side and the private side are not meeting the objective. And if the law said you have to build more housing, it wouldn't be a magic wand, but we would build more housing. Let me say it another way to you if I can explain this. If I had a piece of paper in front of me and drew a line down the middle of it, and on the right-hand side, it was entitled Obstacles to Building More Housing. And on the left-hand side, I had Requirements to Build Housing. On the right-hand side, I would have a long list, and so would you. Excessive local control, nimbyism, overregulation, cost of affordable housing model that works for many, but not for nearly enough insufficient resources to meet the need, and lack of housing innovation, because I think we should be doing a lot more manufactured housing to address the cost and the lack of timeliness. But that would be on the right-hand side of the page. On the left-hand side of the page would be nothing, except, except an old housing element law that requires cities to plan for housing, but not to produce any. How are we gonna overcome excessive local control and nimbyism? 
We're going to overcome those obstacles if the law says you have to build more housing and it's enforceable. That will make those other things that dominate the discussion less weighty than they currently are. God bless Tony Atkins and the governor for getting SP9 done. But that's one strategy. And that's the bill that would end single family zoning. Which we want to do in our city as well. But that's one strategy. We need 30, 40, 50 SB9s, if you will, for all the different impediments to building housing. And there's no legal compulsion to produce what we all desperately know we need. Is housing that important? If it is, it ought to be a legal right and that ought to be enforceable in a real way. So what has the governor said about your idea? Does he have thoughts? We've talked a lot to the governor in the early years prior to COVID about our state task force recommendations to do it a slightly different way, which was to create a legally enforceable obligation and have an inspector general have the enforcement ability against any city, county, or state that is not aggressively moving to produce more housing. I won't speak for the governor, of course, but I think there's a concern about cost, that a new entitlement, for example, or a new right would be too costly for the state and the cities. And, you know, I say a couple of things to that. Number one, thanks to his leadership and thanks to the federal government, we've got more resources than we've ever had before. And yes, it's true that much of them are one-time resources, but we have money. And then, of course, the obvious retort is what is the cost of what we're not doing today? The public safety costs, the public health costs, the way that this issue, to use the LA Times headline, is roiling our state. The number one concern for people. People will support the money if they know that the systems are actually changing to respond to scale, or at least as close to scale as possible. And my ideas are not saying we're curing the problem. I've never said that, I don't believe that. But I think we can fundamentally move the needle and provide relief to thousands of more people and to our communities at the same time. If we match the money, the generous allocation of money with the policies and the system changes that will move us towards greater production of housing and yes, temporary housing together with services so that people can end this horrible state of homelessness. We have the money now, at least the start to the money. We need to match it with the policy that is gonna direct us towards the result that people are demanding. So once the right to housing is inscribed in law, as you just explained, it'll push the city to do more. But what makes you think that that's the case? When that right-hand column of obstacles remains just as long, what evidence do you have for this theory of change that the right is going to be the thing that pushes all of these other issues over the limit to actually get it done? There are historic analogies unrelated to housing, but in a way related to housing. That is, how did we achieve civil rights in this country? Many ways, including far-reaching legislation that said that people have the equal right to public accommodations regardless of their race, that have the right to vote regardless of the race, because we know that there was longstanding discrimination against African-Americans and other people of color. 
But it wasn't just the laws that were written. It was also the federal courts that got involved and enforced the Supreme Court decision in 1954 prohibiting segregation, separate but equal, no more. We use the courts to force the change. And the court should be a last resort, but what I'm saying is that it was the force of law that said desegregation is not going to just happen on its own because we know it's the right thing. It took law and it took court orders to make that change. All I'm saying here with the right to housing is if an individual is unhoused and they seek housing, that the city in this instance, and by the way, I recognize the imperfection of what I'm doing here in the city because we're one city, which is why I'm on your statewide podcast and hope that this becomes a statewide approach and a statewide policy, but you gotta start somewhere. If an individual is unhoused, said to the officials in my city, I'm unhoused and I want housing, we would have 10 days to provide that housing. And if we said no and the individual is eligible, he or she could go to court and a court could not assess damages against the city or make this some big litigation thing, but could simply order us to provide housing to that person. What's wrong with that? It's pretty basic and it would propel us because we know we would be required eventually by a court of law to move faster, to move with greater urgency and to try to provide capacity for the 5,000 or so people that we identify, not individually, but we identify cumulatively as part of the comprehensive siting plan that we passed in Sacramento. And on August 10th, we passed something that I don't think anybody else has done in the state, and that is we pre-approved 21 sites to say we're not gonna go through this siting exercise one by one and have you know, the fights that are inevitable. My colleagues came forward, we passed 21 sites, we're adding more sites, and now all we have to do is implement. Well, I want to implement faster with greater urgency. The law ought to require that and it ought to be required everywhere in our society. So there's another part of this beyond just the right to housing that you've included as well. And that is ultimately an obligation for people to accept housing that's being offered. That's been criticized by some, particularly homelessness advocates, is essentially criminalizing being homeless and sort of this longstanding argument about that. I know that your plan does not include police officers to you know enforce that rule, but how would you get around the fact that if there's an obligation for someone to accept housing and they don't want to do that, well, what's the ultimate outcome there? Couple of points. Number one is I believe that the vast majority of people who are unsheltered on the street want to come inside. My work in this area includes the Mental Health Services Act, Proposition 63. Virtually all of it based on the idea of voluntary services, assertive outreach, but voluntary services. And that's what I believe. And the right, by the way, precedes the obligation. You can never ask somebody to come indoors if you don't have anything to offer them. And so the right is 90 to 95% of my plan. The obligation to come inside is the last five to 10%. What happens if in the end, somebody is offered multiple options, by the way, because my ordinance says not just one option, but multiple options to come indoors, because not everybody wants to live in congregate shelter. Not everybody's ready for permanent housing. It's gotta be multiple options. What happens? All the ordinance says is that the individual cannot camp in the location they're camping. 
And by the way, our plan, including our comprehensive siting plan, includes designated campsites. So people who want to camp temporarily would have that option. It would probably be much easier, actually, politically and otherwise, to have left off that last 5 to 10%. But I want to be consistent, and I want to put out what I believe, which is fundamentally that the public policy of the society must be that people live indoors. 90 to 95% of that is the government's obligation. The last 5 to 10% may fall on some individuals, and if it does, we enforce it without police, with a trauma-based outreach approach, with no criminal or civil penalties. We simply designate where it's appropriate to camp and where you can't camp. I think that balance is important, and I'm willing to engage the advocates and anybody else in that. But I think the main point is that I know that becomes the headline, so to speak, because that is the controversy. But maybe I'm onto something because I got some folks who say the right is too expensive and undoable, and others who say that the obligation is unfair. And you got everybody picking at different sides of it. Maybe you're onto something. But again, I don't say that I've got the perfect formula by any means. I just believe that the law ought to back up our aspiration, which is that it's inhumane for anybody to be living outdoors for a long period of time. People ought to be inside getting the help and the care that they need. So you've talked about that indoor being better than outdoor, but according to the ordinance, two of the options that a person must be offered could include those safe ground sanctioned encampments, as you just mentioned. So how do you ensure that we don't just end up with a whole bunch of sanctioned tent encampments? And what do you tell a person who feels safer, perhaps being on their own on a bench or in a park, who might not want to enter this particular camp where, I don't know, maybe someone that they've had negative interactions with in the past, and that's one of the only options that they can enter? Well, first of all, the idea of safe ground, which is enabling people to live in tents, but in an organized way, I'm actually a reluctant convert to believing that that needs to be part of a plan. I don't like it, but I also recognize that, at least temporarily, that allowing people to live in tents, but in a way that is organized and allows the social workers, the outreach workers, the mental health workers to come on into an organized place gives people then a better chance at help than if they're spread out all over the city. So I believe that it is a necessary, appropriate, temporary option for some people. And plus, our business communities and our neighborhoods are saying loud and clear, and I have sympathy with this, that there are some places which is not appropriate to be living and in, in camping. The second part of the question again, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess these kind of safe grounds have also been, I spoke with someone in San Clemente where that was instituted and it ended up not being all that safe. How do you address a person's safety concerns who would rather camp on their own as opposed to in a big group and be outdoors anyway? So it's important to kind of go back and reiterate something. Safe ground is not the first option. The first option is getting people indoors. 
in the congregate shelter, in the tiny homes, in the converted motels, into permanent housing with whatever support they need. So that's the drive here. The choice between living in a designated camp area versus living on a bench, the individual has a much better chance of getting help and ending their homelessness if they are in an organized place. And my record is pretty clear on this in terms of leading with my heart and what I've done in my career. But I will say this pretty plainly. I do not believe living on a park bench is a civil right. I don't. And I think if it's a balance between autonomy and health and safety, the balance goes to safety and health, especially for the individual. I mean, I think about all kinds of debates I've participated in, the great controversy over requiring people who ride motorcycles to wear motorcycle helmets. Boy, talk about an issue where the rights to do whatever you want was put forward in a very forceful way, and it was an easy call for me because every right has its limitations and has its balance. And living on the street, I think most people don't want to. And the people who say they want to are the people who need the help the most. But I don't think people should be living on a park bench. And a hard balance, and it's not an absolute in terms of autonomy, then I accept that, but that's what the law does. It makes distinctions and balances rights and responsibilities in the best way that it can. There's people that I've talked to who are, you know, staying on park benches, for example, and have been offered shelter and chosen not to go because for them, that is not safety. They feel safer on the street than in a shelter because of certain conditions, because they have felt preyed upon in the past in shelters. If you could speak a little bit to the issue of the actual conditions in shelters that have not had the most stellar record. A couple of things. Number one, the notion of shelter has changed over the last couple of years. Every shelter has to include the three Ps, pets, possessions, and partners, because people need to have every support that has enabled them to survive on the streets when they come inside. But the real answer is, we have to have a diversity of options for people. That's why Project Home Key, I think, is so remarkable, especially if we can expand it, because it provides an alternative to congregate shelter. People can have autonomy inside of a room. And the same thing with the tiny home movement, which I think has been grossly underplayed. We need a manufactured housing revolution in this state and get to much greater scale with the tax incentives and everything else backing that kind of quality housing. But the answer is that it's not park bench or congregate shelter. We've got to see and meet people where they are at. That's been the fundamental notion of the Mental Health Services Act, that in the end, people who have been traumatized, people who are fearful, that we're only going to succeed in helping them end their homelessness if we meet them where they're at. I believe in that. That's my life's work. But it's not either that or remain out on the street, because you have to start somewhere. And bringing people indoors is a start to helping people find their recovery. Not everybody will, but again, we're not trying to cure anything here. We're just trying to make it much better than it currently is. Your plan includes, I guess, a sort of ramp up to provide the shelter and housing that would be necessary to sort of implement this right. And you're talking about that kind of coming in online fully in 2023. 
That's correct, but I also have an off-ramp for my city, which is to say that if we are making substantial progress by the fall of 2022 towards implementing our comprehensive homeless siting plan, that the council can extend the January 1, 2023 effective date of the new law. Let's say 2025 now. Let's use that as a date. So what does homelessness in Sacramento look to you in 2025 assuming your plan is implemented by then? I want thousands of additional people indoors and on their way to ending their homelessness in permanent housing with whatever support and services they need. And by the way, to state the obvious, the city cannot do this alone even within our region here. Partnership with the county is essential and we're working on that and we're working collaboratively with the county. I want to push to bring in thousands of people, and I want the people of Sacramento to say not that it's cured, but that it feels better, that they see progress. That's what I want. And so the law, again, to get back to the essence of this, states the ideal. The law also has a prod. It says you either make greater progress or the law is going to require us to do whatever it takes to make greater progress. And that is a powerful tool that has not been utilized, except in the case of Judge Carter in Los Angeles and in Orange County. And if you want to look at Orange County, and I know none of that's perfect, but I was down there last week. And if you look at Be Well Orange County and the campuses that they are building using the Mental Health Services Act and SB 82 and the other sources of new money that they have, they in part were pushed and compelled by the fact that there was a court order that said, come on now, the status quo is not good and it's not acceptable. Now, I'm not saying that, again, is the perfect way to do it, but I think if the law said we have to produce better results, that the systems would adapt push themselves to produce better results. This is different, by the way, and I just have to make this point because I know that there has been some comparison with what I've put out there and what City Council Member Buscayeno has put out there in Los Angeles. And I, I've only met him once or twice, and I'm not critical because I haven't talked to him about this. But I just want to say that what I'm putting forward is not what he's putting forward at least what he's trying to take to the ballot. Because as I understand his plan, there is no real right to housing. There's no responsibility for the city of Los Angeles under his plan to produce X number of additional units of affordable housing and or shelter. He's just simply saying that if you offer somebody shelter and everyone in a particular encampment, you can move the encampment. That's not what I'm proposing. I am proposing a legal right that can be enforced, the right itself, before you ever get to that last 5%, if you ever get there, and that is the obligations. I know there's been some contrast and conflation, and maybe I need to take note, and my ordinance will go through the right kinds of amendments and amendment process, but the focus is on a citywide obligation to produce more housing and shelter to meet the need. So we were talking earlier, Manuel and I, sort of our portion of the podcast before the interview about this 
deep sense of frustration that many in the public are expressing over the homeless issue in the state, as you've referenced, as we've discussed, billions of dollars spent and approved in recent years. And yet a lot of people believe, and rightfully so, that the problem is getting worse. You know, what do you hear about this when you talk to residents? It's exactly what I'm living in my city, of course. I am working hard to produce results. And I believe I've laid the foundation with the comprehensive siting plan, with consolidating all the resources we have, outreaching and working with our county to actually make change. And yet the change hasn't happened yet. We have gotten thousands of people indoors over the last five years, and many of them permanently housed. But people are becoming homeless faster as well. And I know, and everybody in my position or similar position knows, People can feel that it's actually getting better, that we're getting closer to scale, even if we never get to scale, that until that happens, people are going to be frustrated. And all I'm saying is that there's a unique opportunity. When I was pro tem of the Senate 10 years ago, we had a $60 billion budget deficit. We could never, ever imagine getting billions of dollars in new money to combat homelessness or combat any of these significant problems. 10 years later, there is more resource than we've ever had before. It may not be enough, but it's a lot. And all I'm saying is take that opportunity and combine it with the force of law, not on the individual, but on all levels of government to do better because the law matters. The law mattered in the deep south in the 1950s and the 1960s. The law matters. God, I could go on and on. I'm going to say one more thing. In the 1960s, when the state passed the Letterman Petra Short Act, the 5150 law, there's a little known part of that law that rarely gets discussed. And that is, that law applies to people with developmental disabilities as well. And you know what the legislature did back then? And obviously, it's easy to criticize in retrospect. And in some ways, that law had a lot of great elements to it. But what they said was, if you have a developmental disability, you are entitled to treatment and services so you can live independently in the community. And you know what they said about mental health? Not an entitlement. There continues to be a discrimination, call it stigma, against people who are living with severe mental illness. And we, collectively, are allowing people to linger on the streets, and collectively we were frustrated as hell, and we're putting real money towards it. But maybe we ought to go back to that point of differentiation back in the 1960s, and say that people living with severe mental illness ought to have the right to Treatment, people who are unhoused ought to have the right to housing. That these are basic needs to survive in society. If we are not willing to say that, then how serious are we really about trying to make the problem much better? Again, there may be 10 different ways to create a legal obligation to do better and do more. And smarter people than me, I'm urging them to come up with it. But put the law behind whatever you do. Otherwise, it's all bottom up. 
all aspirational, all great intentions. Thank God for all the new money. We'll help a lot of people along the way, but we'll be steering in many different directions. And five years from now, I don't know whether it will be better. I'd like to think it will be, but I have my concerns. All right, well, Mayor Steinberg, anything else do you want to add or convey, emphasize to our very vast and influential audience of listeners? Well, you do have a vast and influential listenership, and I just appreciate the opportunity. I'm either way ahead of my time here or, you know, maybe I don't have it right. I'm not just a politician for many years. I'm a lawyer, too. I believe in the law, and the law sends signals. The law matters. And when the law says this is required, we have a better chance of it happening. And I hope that somebody picks up the mantle beyond my city and that we provide relief to people who are living, but for the grace of God, there go I out on the streets. And for our entire state and all of our communities who long for something better. We've got a great governor here who really is willing, unlike other governors, to lean into this in the right way. But let's combine the money with the policy and the systems changes, and I think we'll go farther together. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. As always, a call out for you to, if you like us only, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. Only positive feedback. Only positive (laughs) feedback. Exactly. Yes. So this is very important so new people can discover us and learn about California housing issues. Our editor, as always, Victor Figueroa. Victor, thanks so much for all your help cleaning us up and making us sound good. My name is Liam. I work for the LA Times, and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you for listening. <laughs>